were we able to uh, get those message signs put up? So let's, let's look at some message signs because messages are a big deal. And so they say a lot. Remember, you're in, unique like everyone else. <laughs> Remember, only you can prevent bears in hats. <laughs> Poorly made crap. Apathetic employees, great prices, Kmart. That's why we don't have Kmart around anymore. Hip-hop, just like real music, except for the profoundly stupid lyrics. These are all billboards, by the way, on the, on the highways. Hallmark, face it, you'll never come up with anything clever on your own. Fruit of the Loom, assisting wedgie provider since 1938. This is my favorite one right here. I'm going to tell you what it says. Dyslex- Lysdexics, unite at lysdexics.com. All right. So look, messages... They can make sense, and sometimes, let's just face it, messages can be completely confusing. And, and a lot of times what the message is is really the, the portrait of the author's heart. When we send a love note to our lover, whoever that might be, it comes from our heart, and there's a message that we're trying to portray to the people that we're sending the message to. We all have messages, we've received them from people that say one thing, but sometimes what they portray non-verbally says something else. So we have two messages coming at us. We have the verbal message that, you know, everything's okay, but we have the non-verbal message that everything's not okay. And so sometimes we get a little bit confused about what the message means. The message that we give and those that we receive are meant to reveal something important and sometimes those messages are meant to be life-changing and yet they're not always understood the way we meant for them to be understood. And here's one of the problems God's had to deal with throughout the ages when it comes to His message to us People have developed a way of avoiding the message from God. They're going to read the Bible, and they're going to be confronted with something. I mean, if you read the Bible the way that God intended for us to step in and read the Bible, you will be confronted at some point with something you don't like that God has said. And and you know what we've done with that? Especially when somebody else knows what's going on in our life, maybe in our heart, and they bring that to our attention, and they're going to point out to us the inconsistency with our life regarding God's Word and how what we're doing is contrary to what God's called us to do, and we point it out, we bring the Word of God to bring healing and correction, and do you know what happens when you bring it to people? Here's the phrase they'll use. Well, that's the way you read it. That's not, that's not new. That's nothing new. That's been going on for a long time. 
Because what we do is, is we're just, what we want to do is justify what we're doing and we want to justify maybe the sin we're living in. And so how we deal with that is we say, well, that's what it says, but do you know if that's really what is meant to be said? And that's the way you're interpreting it. I'm going to interpret it differently to suit and fit, fit and mold my life. And, and it, all, it, it always comes back to life that when we are confronted with the hard truths of God. Now, I'm going to name some of these issues that we have to deal with, and I want you to hear me before I say anything else. Because a lot of people hear this wrong, especially from Christ followers who start to talk about these things. All these things we're going to be talking about are sin. And God hates sin. That's why he sent Jesus. Sin separates us from God. But let's not get confused with what God does with sin. The reason he sent Jesus is to redeem the sinner. He loves the sinner. That's what the Bible tells us, that God loves the sinner, and he wants to redeem them, pull them out of their sin so that they can live a holy life. And so when I... When I Talk about the next few things in the next moment or two. If this happens to have been you at some point, or maybe is you right now, is you. That's really good English. Maybe if it is you, and you all know you is you, listen to what God's saying. He's calling you out. He's not condemning. He's confronting. He's not condemning. So let me just name a few. For instance, back when I was a kid growing up, divorce was a horrible thing. It was detestable. Not just within the church, outside the church, it was a bad deal too. Matter of fact, uh, there were a lot of people who got divorced that would never go to church because unfortunately, the church had a bad habit of making those people who were divorced for whatever reason, whether if, if it was justified or unjustified, it, it didn't matter sometimes to the church. If you were divorced, that was the unforgivable sin. And you would hear people saying inside the church and wrongly, but they would say sometimes, you've made your bed, now you just sleep in it. That is not from God. God hates divorce. And God has allowed for divorce. And he has, he has given us three areas for divorce. And so if, if you're divorced, I want you to know God loves you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to work in your life. And it may not even be your fault. It may be justified. And so, But back in my day when I was a kid, that was the one thing that people couldn't get over. But it has progressed. Because in the 60s and in the 70s, um, what was shameful and kind of hidden... Um, young college-age kids moving in and living together and sleeping together became to the foreground. It was no longer embarrassing. It was no longer a hidden thing. It was something that was toted and waved as a banner. And the message is that they were giving is we're rebelling against all of society. We're going to start with God because God says marriage is what a man and a woman should have and the marriage bed is to be kept pure. And these... these Young people in the 60s and the 70s were 
cohabitating together and they were fornicating, as the Bible would call it. Did God hate them? Nope. He loves them. Does he hate fornication? Yeah, he does. So we have divorce, we have fornication. Uh, The other one is adultery. It's still kind of a bad thing, but we're not that embarrassed by it anymore. We're not going like that really stupid. We kind of go like, yeah, you know what? It happened. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? And it has progressed from there to now where you would never have talked about it when I was a kid to now it's, it's an open conversation about homosexuality. And the fact that if uh, two people of the same sex are consenting and they want to get into an intimate relationship, it's none of anybody else's business because they're not hurting anybody. And by the way, if we want to get married, we should get married too. And it's all become well and good and fine and dandy in a lot of circles, but yet God's word talks strongly about it and says we shouldn't be doing those things. And it has all really gotten out of control because now if you're not really sure if you're a a guy, you're not really sure if you're a a gal, you don't know because you're really confused about your, your sexual identity, and you come to a form and it says, are you male or female? And you're like, oh, I don't know what to put. I'm so confused. They're now creating on that form a little spot where you can call yourself X. Because you just don't know. Oh, man. I'm just telling you, if you're that confused and you just don't know, go see your doctor. He'll be able to tell you what you are. All right, so the big question is, what's the church supposed to do about all this stuff? What are we supposed to do with transgender, cross-dressers, homosexuality, uh, you know, same-sex marriages? What are we supposed to do about the adulterer and the fornicator and the divorced people? Well, we do the same thing with those folks that we do with the liars and the people that covet and the people that steal, and the people that um, lust. We love them. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus loved those people. Matter of fact, when you go and you read in the Gospels about what Jesus did, he hung out with the what they called the sinners and the publicans. That's not Republicans, although it could be in this day and age. But Jesus was accused of hanging out with prostitutes and drug addicts and adulterers and fornicators and divorced people and with tax collectors. He was hanging out with the, what we would, what was known then as the scum of the earth. That's where Jesus hung out. What did he do? He loved on them. And what happened when he loved on them? Their lives were transformed. Because what Jesus came to do was to take that scum of the earth sinner and transform him into a heavenly saint. That's the message. And so we as a church, we don't change anything. We just keep doing what God's called us to do, what Jesus modeled for us to do. And and these are are not new issues that face the church because all kinds of things are going to start creeping into the church. 
Like we need to be accepting of all this hogwash and nonsense that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Just because our society and our culture says we should, we should? No. We don't answer to them, we answer to God. And so we do what God calls us to do. And that's what John kind of did when he wrote these three short letters to the churches in Asia Minor, known as uh, in modern day as Turkey. John was dealing with second and third generation Christ followers who'd either grown... Um, who had either not gone deep in their relationship with Jesus or they'd grown bored with church. So what happens when you grow bored with church? Look around. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They're doing really important stuff today. Hunting, fishing, recovering from a football game. You know, important things. So it's okay. Uh, Jesus loves them anyway, those dirty sinners. (laughs) Aren't you glad that he loves us? So John wrote this, these three little letters to the church because there were things that were starting to seep into the church. There were some new teachings about Jesus. They They were not truthful teachings. They were false teachings. And, and they were heresy. But here's, here's what's going on. The people in the churches, because they hadn't grown deep in their relationship with Jesus, because they had become bored with the church, they were now starting to look for something different, something more meaningful, something they thought was going to be a little bit more exciting. And so they were going to go in this new direction. And they had these new teachers coming into the church that were teaching them all these really great things. And it was so exciting. And so John says, all right, we better deal with this. And by the way, John is the last of the apostles by this time. He's the last one alive. He's probably, you know, in his early 80s maybe. I mean, he's an old man by now. And he's going he's gonna to die of natural causes. All, all the rest of the 12 that he, that he did ministry with when Jesus was on the planet, they're all gone. They're all dead. They've all been martyred. They all were martyred. And, and John's the only one left. And so now he's the guy that's going like, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something that's really important. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along. Um, I'm just going to start off by reading our entire section that we're going to be studying today. It's crazy. So hang on. It's... It's all of four verses. So here's what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here we have John starting off this letter 
to the churches, and it's completely different than the letters that Paul ever wrote. Because when Paul wrote a letter, he made the salutations and greetings. He identified who he was writing to, and he identified himself as an apostle, as a, as a servant, as a bond servant of Jesus, and he would let that go. But John says, forget all the niceties. We're going to jump right into this thing, and we're going to get after it right away. And so what John's having to do, he's having to deal with some really big issues that have crept into the church. And then it comes under, there's a couple of different things, but it falls all under the umbrella of a teaching or idea or philosophy brought together, and it's called Gnosticism, which means special knowledge and was a combination of pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy predicated on two primary principles. First, the Gnostics taught that the way of salvation was through secret, superior knowledge granted to the initiated. And second, Gnostics considered all matter to be evil, but spirit to be good. Therefore, the Gnostics taught that your physical body is evil, but your soul is good. And that led to a whole new range of problems within the church because they were doing one of two things in, in the extreme um, teaching of this. One is they would take whips and chains and whatever else they could find and they would beat themselves until their backs were bloody, till they were bleeding, till they could hardly stand up anymore because what they were trying to do was bring the evil body under submission to let the spirit free to do its job. The second thing that they did is they took the whole, the whole thing of living in freedom to a whole new level because the body is evil. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with the body because it's going to die and decay and go to hell anyway. It's the spirit that's important. So having multiple sexual partners, uh, being involved in drugs and alcohol and doing all kinds of immoral things with your body was okay because it's the evil part that's going to disappear. The important thing is to preserve the spirit. And that is a big umbrella of what was seeping into the church on a teaching. But what they did was this, is that they brought it to two different kind of aspects of Gnosticism. And the first one is called doctic error, which brought the meaning of to seem or to appear. In other words, it appears this way, but it may not be that way. It may seem to be that way, but it's not that way. And so if the body is evil, the God who is a spirit being cannot have any contact with the body. What do you think that kind of teaching does with the incarnation of Christ? Because that's exactly what it was going against was the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ is, okay, let me help you out. I'm going to give you a short little theological teaching here, and it's going to be real quick. So we believe that Jesus, there's the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the three, the Trinity, has always existed eternally. They don't have a beginning, and they don't have an end. And they are the source of everything that exists. And so Jesus, the Son, has always existed, but he came to earth as a man through the Virgin Mary as a little baby Jesus. That's the incarnation, God becoming man. 
But what they're teaching here is that, that Jesus was from God, but they denied that he was God in human flesh. They said his spirit was from God, but when Jesus was on the earth, he wasn't really Jesus in human form. In other words, he just appeared to be human. He seemed to have human likeness. And what would happen is, is what they said is, if you went to shake Jesus' hand, you couldn't because it wasn't there. If he walked in freshly tilled soil, you wouldn't see any footprints because he wasn't really human. And what he was was kind of like a phantom or a ghost. And so that's the idea that they were teaching, that Jesus came to earth, but he was never really human. If he's not really human and he's only spirit, then he could never be tempted in the same way we were tempted and not sin. The second teaching that was, was eroding and stepping into the church was the Gnostic error, and it was called Serinthian Gnosticism. Serinthius taught that Jesus had a real human body, just the opposite of Doctus, but he was just a man, not God in flesh. He maintained that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came on him, and when the Holy Spirit came on him, Jesus then became the Christ. And then he spent the next three years empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles, to do all the things that God called him to do, to raise people from the dead, to feed the 5,000, because the Spirit of God was on him and made him the Christ. But the moment that Jesus went to the cross to die, because the Spirit of God cannot be associated with pain and suffering because it's evil and wicked, the Spirit of God left Jesus at that moment, and Jesus was no longer the Christ, but simply Jesus the man. And that is why when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're saying that the reason is is because he was no longer the Christ, but just a, a man. But the problem with that is, is that if Jesus was just a man, how can he go to the cross and pay the debt for every sinful human being that's ever walked on the planet? He can't do it just by being a man. He had to be perfect. He had to be God in flesh. And so these are the two things now that John is combating as he writes these letters to the churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey, probably around Corinth. Because if you think about it, go back. I know you guys all remember the study we, you know, we did in 1 Corinthians because it's still fresh on your mind, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Paul was addressing the same issue of Gnosticism in the church. So obviously from the time that Paul wrote his letter and then was crucified and died to now John's writing his letter, Not a lot seems to have changed, and John's going like, we've got a serious problem. And so John, John's coming to the place where he's saying that this is not going to work because if if Jesus was just a man and he died on the cross, there is would be no substitutionary atonement. Ten cent word, let me explain it to you. In other words, the punishment that you deserve is death. And Jesus substituted his place for your place. 
He took your death penalty for you, for me, for every other person on the planet. He took it. He became the substitute atonement, meaning that his blood covered all of your sins. You are no longer held guilty to your sin when God sees you. What God sees in you through the atonement of Jesus is holiness, righteousness, perfection, saintliness. Even though you still sin, you're a saint. Even though you sin, God sees you as he sees Jesus because his blood atones for your sin. He substituted for you. He took your punishment for you. And he brought you redemption. He brought you freedom. He brought you um, grace. He brought you everything that you need in order to have eternal life. Substitutionary atonement. Use that in your Scrabble game. So we have these two big issues. Substitute substitutionary atonement that's being attacked by the Gnostics. We have the incarnation of Christ being attacked by the Gnostics. And these things are seeping into the church and some of the church people who are still attending church are in denial of the incarnation. They're in denial of substitutionary atonement. And so John's going like, we've got to deal with this. And here is the bigger issue we faced with Gnosticism is that it is not dead. We might think it's an old belief system that has, has long gone and it is buried and dead and gone, but it has not died. It is still a well and alive here in our world in North America right now. It's only disguised in a new garb. And there's been a, 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 a raising... A rising interest in Gnostic writings in recent years brought on partly by the popularity of novels and movies such as the Da Vinci Code. Teachings that deny the incarnation and substitute, substitutionary atonement of Jesus are very much alive today in our town. With this kind of false teaching that was starting to infiltrate into the church, we can see why John not only wrote to the churches, but also why he starts with the wording he does here in 1 John. Let's look at verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life... John is hitting two realities here to combat the false teaching. First, John is making it known that this message of Jesus is real. And Jesus is the real deal. That's why he says, we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. You see, he's, he's dealing with that whole issue that Jesus came, but he was only spirit. And John's talking as one who's going to be a witness in the court of law. What he says is absolutely truthful. He's saying, I'm the last guy alive that walked with Jesus while he did ministry. And here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what I did. Here's how I touched Jesus. This is the things that we did. He said, Jesus and I, we played frisbee on the beach. Jesus and I, we played tackle football. And he tackled me hard. That's what he's saying. There's this physical touch because he's a real person. 
human in flesh, fully God, fully man. And he came to earth. That is why he starts off with that. And, and that's the first thing that he's trying to make known. And the second thing he, the, John is saying is that Jesus is eternal. Like I said at the beginning of this, he has no beginning and he has no end. He is ter- eternal. How do we know that when he, we look at this, it says that the word of life, who do, what do we know that the word of life is? Because in the gospel of John, he starts with this in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's how he's addressing the eternal being of Jesus. That he's always existed. He's not something that's been created. And then he says, not only was Jesus God from the beginning and he created everything that there was, he says this in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the testimony of the one who was there. This is the testimony on which we hang all of our belief and trust in Jesus for being who Jesus said he was. And John's making that known. Now, this is really important for us because we need to get a hold of these basic biblical principles and truths and live by them in our life. We need to be able to say to somebody, Jesus is the Son of God. He came in flesh. He was fully God. He was fully man. When he went to the cross and he died, he went in our place and he took our penalty for us. He substituted himself for us. That's the testimony that John gives for us to give. And the way that we know that Jesus is the Word and He is the life is because in John 14, 6, Jesus said this of Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So what John is really saying is this. What I heard from Jesus many years ago is still ringing in my ears as clear as a bell today as when I first heard it. What I saw many years ago when Jesus was on the earth is that as clear and vivid to me today as it was then. We looked upon Jesus. We touched him with our hands in very specific times and very specific incidents in the past. And that Jesus is still the same Jesus today. So when Jesus, when John calls Jesus the word of life, This is about the message. In essence, John is telling his readers and us that Jesus came to earth in the flesh from the Father in heaven with the message of God the Father for us. Jesus brought the message. He brought clarity to the message that God had been sending through the prophets and the law of old that was convoluted, complicated, and a bit foggy. And so God sent the message, Jesus. And, and it's, it's really what I like about this is because we could say that Jesus is both the preacher of God's message and the message itself. So when we walk this way, we are to walk in the message. Walk in the message of Jesus. Look at verse 2. Now, all the scholars say 
John's starting off his letter, and he's writing, and he's got this train of thought going, but immediately like that, he, he takes a break from it. And in verse 2, he does something that's kind of like he's putting parentheses around the whole thing, going like, hold on a second, got to say this before I move on. So here's this. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles or if you have your app, I want you to take that word manifest and you should circle it, underline it, highlight it somewhere. Both times. I'm in the uh, English Standard Version. And so you have manifest, was made manifest, and we have seen it and was with the Father, and was manifest to us. Now, here's what that means. If we, if we really come to the idea of manifest, manifest means to be made visible, to be made seen, and to be understood. If we understand John correctly, to refer to the spiritual life possessed by Jesus and imparted by him to others, to us, The meaning is that this spiritual life became known, understandable, and available when Jesus appeared on earth. God revealed his son to the world. So here's the thing about it. As as you have been around us for the last five months, maybe six months, you have heard that word manifest, presence, used a lot. And so what we're talking about is, is we're talking about seeking God And we're asking him to make manifest the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit every time we come together to worship. We're asking for the manifest presence of Jesus whenever there are two or three of you gathered together. We are asking for the manifest presence of Jesus to show up in every small group meeting, to show up at every board meeting, to show up at every youth group meeting, to show up at kids' church, even right now as they're having their meeting, to show up at a worship practice, to show up at Rakus. We want the manifest presence of Jesus to show up through His Holy Spirit so that we get a better understanding of who God is. Now, are we saying that God isn't present when He is manifest present, doesn't show up? No. Because he said that his presence is going to be everywhere. Omnipresent is the word that is used for that. And it says that Jesus is here right now. Without his manifest presence, he's still here in, in presence. But he's also down at the Lander Bar. Get this. This might shake you a little bit. He's over at the Mormon church right now. He's in the home of the meth addict. He's in the home of the alcoholic. He's in the home of the porn addict. His presence is everywhere. But what we're asking for is for him to make himself available in his manifest presence to change things. And that's what we want. And here's what happens when the manifest presence shows up of Jesus. We know God is going to change things. He's going to change hearts. He's going to change attitudes. He will change perspectives. He will change sinners into saints. Meaning, when God changes this church, 
He transforms her. Our entire community will be changed. And when our community is changed, then our country will be changed. Our, our county will be changed. And when our county is changed, then our entire nation will be changed because the manifest presence of God does his work through us and in us. But that only happens when the manifest presence of Jesus shows up, first of all, in your own personal life. Every day. It's when he shows up in your home. Every day. It's when he shows up at your workplace. Every day. It only happens when Jesus shows up in your recreation and in your rest. It's a very simple process to have the manifest presence of Jesus in your life every day. All you have to do is ask God for it. God will be more than willing to make the manifest presence of Jesus real, as real to you today as he did to John back then. Let's move on to verse 3. Out of the parentheses in the manifest presence. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now, I'm going to tell you this word fellowship over the years that I've been in church, which has only been 58. That word fellowship becomes kind of like an old, really old coin. It gets worn and it gets a little bit thin. Because what we've come to understand, we've, we've kind of worn that word out. We've kind of worn the meaning of it out. It, it doesn't mean to us what it did mean, koinonia. It's lost, it's lost its punch. It's kind of what it means now to us is that grabbing a cup of coffee and a donut, either before the service, in the middle of the service, or after the service, and hanging around a bunch of people and going, hey, uh, up yours. Right? And then we walk out and go, oh, yeah, I had really good fellowship at church today. The coffee was awesome. The donuts were fresh, and it was amazing. And we walk home and go, like, fellowship was awesome. And yet, fellowship is much deeper than that. Its root meaning is a deep sharing of things in common. Just think about everything we have in common. We have, of course, the kind of the main big three things we have in common, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of our fellowship. We have uh, the Word of God in common. We have prayer. We have singing new songs. We have the Word, prayer, and singing new songs. We have giving back to God. All of that, we call it worship. We also have each other. And we share our life with each other. And we celebrate what God's doing. And we also have the accountability to make sure that we're walking the way God has called us to walk. Those are the things that we share in common. Fellowship takes on different aspects. That if we lack one, we lack in all. We cannot have fellowship with God our Father without having fellowship with Jesus. And the way that we have fellowship with Jesus is through the Holy Spirit. Having fellowship with God means we're going into business with God. Get this. If you're going to fellowship with God, you're going to get into God's business. Do you know what God's business is? 
People. People. God's business is all about people. And so what we want to do is we want to get into business with God. What his enterprises are, are to be our enterprises. Fellowship with God means that we share mutual interest, devotion, and activity. As a Christ follower in close fellowship with God, his heartbeat becomes our heartbeat. His mission becomes our mission. His goals and plans become our goals and plans. We love what he loves. We desire what he desires. We hate what he hates. And our will is doing what he wills. This journey with God should be and an ever-deepening fellowship with God that creates and reproduces within us the mind of Christ. That is what the word fellowship means in the Bible. This fellowship that we have in Jesus is then transferred to other Christ followers. You cannot have fellowship, true fellowship with Jesus alone. You have to have fellowship with other Christ followers or your growth in Christ will be hampered. Why do you think it is that we keep talking so much in here about being connected in some kind of a small group, life group? It's because when you are not connected with other believers other than on this time, you're not going to grow in your faith. Because you may, you may be reading something in the Word of God and you might go like, well, that sounds kind of funny and maybe this is what it means, but I'm not sure. But you know what? Because I think I'm the smartest guy I know, I'm going to believe what I think I believe. And the next thing you know, you're over here on an island by yourself because the rest of the church is over here going like, no, this is what we believe. This is what we know God taught us to, to believe and this is what God has shown us to be true. And that person's over on an island, and they're going like, no, but, but that's not the way I read it. I read it differently than you, so I'm going to stay on my island by myself. And God's going like, you can't do that. If you're going to be in fellowship with me, if you're going to be in fellowship with Jesus, if you're going to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you have to be in fellowship with other Christ followers. You can't get around it. You can't find anywhere in the entire Bible that says otherwise. So if you're not in a small group, contact Pastor John. He doesn't have anything to do these days. <laughs> you cannot have fellowship alone. Now here, here's what happens. It is a requirement for us to step into relationship with people even when we don't feel like it. John has said to me, and I felt it myself, and I've heard other people say it that at Rakus, that it's at the end of the day, and it was on a Thursday, which is the next to the last day of the work week for most of us. And we're tired, and we're worn out. We're going like, we get home, we grab a quick bite to eat, and we're like, I'm just so tired, I just don't want to go tonight. But then the Spirit of God gives you a little bit of a nudge and you go like, I'm going to go anyway. At least the music will be loud enough to where if I fall asleep and snore, nobody will hear me. And so come in and relax and sit down and maybe have a, have a little snooze. We're okay with that. 
But what happens is, is all of a sudden, you're in the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And the next thing you know, you're in the fellowship of other believers who are also in the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in that process, all of a sudden, what you thought was going to be maybe tiring, boring, maybe not exciting, maybe a sleep aid, God has transformed it. And it brought more energy and strength than you could ever have imagined. And you walk out renewed. And you're thinking like, Friday? It's going to be a piece of cake. I am going to breeze through Friday like it was Monday. Because I'm well rested in the Spirit of God. That is what happens when we're in fellowship with the Father and each other. But also being in fellowship with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit also solves our spiritual loneliness problem. Even when you think you are alone, you're not alone. In Hebrews 13, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And those words of, of Jesus are his promise to you. You may be alone, but if you're a Christ follower, you are never lonely. Because you've got Jesus. You may be lonely, but you're never alone. You've always got Jesus right there with us. And, and sometimes what we need, you know, is we need somebody with skin on, just to be frankly honest with you. Because God didn't create us just to be alone. He wants us to be in fellowship. He wants us to be in connection with other people. And so what happens is, is that when we step into fellowship with other peoples, other people, our physical loneliness finds a solution. Because now we're connecting with other people on the same level, with the same interests, with the same desires, and that's following God. And you will find that you will have sweeter and closer relationships, oftentimes in the fellowship of the church, than with blood relatives. That is what we want for you here at this church. We want you to encounter Jesus in a deep way so that your spiritual loneliness is satisfied. We want you to connect with others because when you have an encounter with Jesus, manifest presence, and you are connected with other Christ followers, you will then make an impact on this world. You will reach into places you never thought you could reach. Let's move on to verse 4 says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy will be complete when we are sharing in mutual fellowship with other believers. May be complete means permanently full and permanently filled. That's what joy means. And the joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by the means of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Joy just describes a reality in life of genuine satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Joy is a spirit of exultation regardless of the circumstances. Joy is a sense of supernatural strength that can only come from the Lord. As Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So joy is the response of the soul that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Christ as our Savior and Lord. And here's the, the last passage I'm going to leave with you today. Make it 
a part of your life. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is because Jesus is both giving and being God's message for your life. Amen? Father, I thank you today that you, you've given us the living word, a living message that's found in Jesus. I thank you that regardless of where we're at, whatever life circumstances are, we can step into the joy of it. You've called us into fellowship. You've called us to seek your manifest presence in all aspects of our life. And I pray this morning, God, that we would not easily forget these things, that they would be uh, permanently etched on our heart particularly when we are feeling down, when we are feeling like no one cares, when we feel like there's nobody else around. We know that you will never leave us or forsake us. But we also ask, God, that you would provide people, provide someone with skin on who is going to help fulfill the physical need of being connected. And so I pray, God, that for all of us, we would find a group of people in this fellowship that we can connect with that will help us to grow, that, that they would be iron and they would sharpen us, and we would sharpen them as iron and that your name would be glorified, and this church would be uh, growing deeper in relationship with you. And as we do, we'd grow wider into our community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know.